1903, Antonio Azul, the leader of the Akamel Odom, wrote a letter to President Theodore Roosevelt. In this letter, Azul would recount the history of his people, with special emphasis on the traditional life farming alongside the Gila River, which had sustained the Odom for untold generations. He also made sure to point out how his people had been aides to Americans in the days of the California Gold Rush, always ready with and willing to share food and water. Azul then stated that his people's firm desire was to remain self-sufficient. They had traditionally turned down government help in order to plant, grow, and eat their own food. The Akamel Odom were not looking for a handout, then or now. However, the situation on the Pima Reservation now was dire. His people had experienced multiple crop failures, and, quote, Our water supply during low water has been taken from us by whites, and there has been much suffering for the necessaries of life, end quote. If he had to put a finger on it, Azul said the economic cost to his people was more than $100,000. This direct appeal to the president was something of a last resort, as all other avenues of redress had failed. The Akamel Odom had suffered greatly over the past four decades, but the root cause of all their woes could be traced back to the one simple fact, that their precious water had been taken from them. I'm your host, David Rukhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 161, A Heritage of Conflict and Litigation. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we watched as the Akamel Odom and tribes affiliated with them went from a prosperous, well-respected part of the southern Arizona landscape to having to leave their beloved Gila River to feed themselves while also being considered for deportation to Oklahoma. The main culprit behind this shift were the white settlers who had planted their own fields and irrigation canals upstream from the Odom Reservation, causing their access to the life-sustaining waters of the Gila to literally dry up. I wish I could say that things are going to get better in this episode, but as everyone who has seen the modern-day Gila knows, that's not how it's going to be. There was a brief resurgence of hope when abnormal amounts of precipitation fell starting in 1873, but we ended last week with the resumption of low rainfall in the summer of 1875. I'm again leaning heavily on historian David H. De Jong's retelling of the Akamel Odom situation, and he makes the point here that the tribe's irrigation system was built to still deliver water even in low-flow years. However, that system was built for natural low-flow years. With all the diversion happening at white settlements upstream, the Odom's canals were left useless. By the way, if it seems like I keep coming back around to this point, it's only because I am, which is only because it really is the root problem behind everything that's happening. The low rainfall would persist through 1883, meaning that hardships would just keep on compounding. The natural result of all this was that the Odom and other affiliated tribes up and left the reservation. 
1876, the 9,000 acre Blackwater District, which included the eponymous spring and the head of the Little Gila River, was added to the reservation by executive order simply because 200 Amerindians were already living there while crops were dying closer to the Gila. Two years later, in 1878, the western half of the reservation was bone dry, so the Amerindians were leaving to work on ranches or in mines, or for whatever labor they could get in Florence or along the Salt River. That year, more than 1,000 Akamel Odom were harvesting wheat north of the Salt River, while near the Mormon settlement of Lehigh and at the confluence of the Salt and the Gila, some 79 Maricopa families were also farming. It's also noteworthy that for all the white talk about how shiftless and lazy Amerindians were, that the Akamel Odom and Maricopa specifically told an Indian inspector that they had never accepted a government handout and still didn't want one. But with the bad situation on the reservation, they asked the natural question, how were they to provide for their families? Of course, this being the Arizona Territory in the 1870s, the American population was less than happy about these Indian squatters setting up shop on non-reservation land, especially in the fertile Salt River Valley. Remember that Phoenix is roughly a decade old at this point and was three years away from incorporation, so they weren't happy to have these savages trying to settle so close to their American Eden. There were plots afoot to seize the land the Akamel Odom and Maricopa had irrigated and planted, sometimes in cahoots with local officials. Since the land was public land, the Amerindians did have a right to settle and improve it, but they were ignorant of land claim laws, which made it easier for them to be swindled by unscrupulous individuals too. Lucky for them though, the top brass of the U.S. Army actually had their backs. Major General Irvin McDowell, then commander of the Division of the Pacific and the namesake for Fort McDowell, had actually led some Pima and Maricopa men about a decade earlier and had nothing but fondness for them. His glowing report was enough to convince William Tecumseh Sherman, the general of the whole army, to order an investigation of the condition of the Pima and that General McDowell see to it that they were not molested by any white settlers. The job of actually investigating and protecting the Amerindians fell on the shoulders of Captain Adna R. Chaffee, now making his sixth appearance in our podcast. If you need a refresher, I recommend re-listening to episode 72, because in two years from his investigation into the Pima, he will be temporarily put in charge of the San Carlos Reservation and trying to untangle all the problems from the corrupt agent Henry Hart. While Chaffee did find that the Pima were kind of just wantonly settling in the Salt River Valley, most of the time they were victims of white aggression. To keep the peace, he suggested a logical course of action. Split off more than 1,500 acres and give it to these mostly peaceful Amerindian farmers as a reservation. This wasn't a totally new idea. John Stout, the Indian agent assigned to the Pima Reservation, also floated the idea in 1878, rightfully pointing out that if more white settlement happened upstream of the Gila, the river would never be able to support the Amerindians again. So he also suggested that the government set up a reservation, temporary or otherwise, along the Salt River as an expedient to help out the Pima. He would write, quote, Indians have some rights, and morally, if not legally, 
they have a right to be where they are. End quote. Of course, the idea of a new reservation also clashed a bit with that other idea that never truly dies, deporting the Pima to Oklahoma. However, McDowell used his influence to quash this, arguing to Sherman that, quote, we have no more right to deport them than we have to send farmers from the Connecticut Valley to Arizona, end quote. And amazingly enough for how these stories usually go, McDowell's arguments about how the Agamel Odom were basically the model for how the U.S. wanted all tribes to be actually won the day. In fact, in 1879, President Rutherford B. Hayes took the drastic step of halting all sale of public domain land in the Salt River Valley and then basically handing over everything that had not been settled by Americans to the Pima and the Maricopa. This land, technically an annex of the Pima Reservation, ran in a strip along the Salt River, extending two miles from either bank and going east as far as the White Mountain Apache Reservation, more than a hundred miles to the east. Hayes just handed over to the Amerindians every acre of unclaimed land in Phoenix, Tempe, and heading up the river past modern Roosevelt Lake. As you can imagine, every official in the Salt River Valley geared up for a political fight to take back this land, with every white settler fearing that they would be booted off their property, that the railroad would never connect with their community, and, horror of horrors, they wouldn't be able to sell liquor. Governor John C. Fremont, who was actually in the territory for once, and no, I will never grow tired of making absentee jokes about Governor Fremont, wrote bluntly that the Salt and Gila Rivers should just straight up be given to Americans and the Amerindians should be forced to the Colorado. Even Chaffee, firmly in the Amerindians' corner, thought the president's decision was probably not the best, rightfully pointing out all it did was essentially give Amerindians a checkerboard of discrete lots, each of which was surrounded by now angry white settlers. Eventually, the political pressure was enough that President Hayes backed down, opting instead for a more modest extension of the Pima Reservation to the northwest until the junction of the Salt and the Gila, and then four miles up the Salt. He also approved a separate reservation on the north bank of the Salt River, south of Fort McDowell. And these are the boundary lines that we still live with as the Gila River Reservation still goes up to the junction of the Salt and the Gila, and I grew up just 10 minutes away from the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community north of Mesa. As something of a coda to this section of our story, in 1881, President Grover Cleveland would extend the Pima Reservation to the south and west of the Gila River, and the next year would even double its size from 180,000 to 360,000 acres. While I'm sure the added land was nice, there was just one glaring problem. These extensions did absolutely nothing to address the real issue. The Akamel Odom could have all the land they wanted, but with no water to irrigate it, they would always be in trouble. And that's not just me talking. The superintendent of the Pima Agency also made this point when he said, quote, the reservation contains good, irrigable lands, but lacks the chief essential, water, end quote. What's ironic about this is that in December 1878, there was a territorial court case that seemed to set the precedent that the Pima had legal grounds to get their water back. 
And forgive what's going to be a long digression, but what I find truly fascinating is that I've actually mentioned this case, Kelsey versus McAteer, before. Back in episode 91, I was recounting the life and times of the very colorful Charles Beach, who was the editor of the Prescott Daily Miner and a man of very dubious morals. I mentioned in that episode that he was part of what I termed was probably the single most memorable courtroom drama during the territorial period, though I think that might now take a backseat to the trial of John Rhodes and Ed Tewksbury. Anyway, to make a long story short, this is the incident where Beach was in court to back up his mother-in-law in a water rights case where the two attorneys got into a physical altercation and the man Beach's extended family was in a legal battle with suddenly pulled a knife and started stabbing people, including Beach. And Beach would actually end up pulling a gun and shooting this knife-wielding man in the back, inflicting a wound that would eventually kill him. At the time, I mentioned it because it was just this crazy story that this larger-than-life individual had been part of. But the heart of the case was a water dispute between the two parties who were living off of the same creek. And after the final verdict was handed down, telegrams began flying between the Army Command of Arizona and Washington. Mainly because, as General McDowell pointed out, the ruling in Kelsey v. McIntyre basically established that diverting water upstream of previously established settlements was illegal. And even General Sherman in Washington had to agree with McDowell's conclusions. But the problem now is, what do you do about all the settlers who were living upstream from the Pima Reservation and had been for some time now? This whole discussion was yet another reason why Hayes suddenly declared an end to buying public land in the Salt River Valley. But there was some talk of a lawsuit to restore the Alcamel Odom's water rights to them. As you probably can imagine, this idea didn't get too far, because could you imagine what would happen if the court actually ruled that those settlers had to return all the water to the Gila? However, this wouldn't be the last time that a court case was considered either. In 1886, plans were drawn up to build the Florence Canal and an associated dam, which would divert even more water from the Gila to those growing crops near the town of, you guessed it, Florence. The Indian Bureau was naturally concerned about this endeavor, and they even asked the still pretty new U.S. Geological Survey to look over the matter. The USGS did investigate and finally ruled that the Akamel Odom needed all the flow of the Gila River if they were to return to normal farming operations. This canal would take what water was left and give it to those running the canal, which would leave Pima land pretty much uninhabitable. The owners of the Florence Canal Company were fearful that this negative finding would stop their plans, so they tried to cut a deal. They agreed to provide the Akamel Odom with the current amount of water they were receiving, Note, they didn't agree to the amount that the Odom had historically enjoyed. But here's the kicker. The USGS and U.S. Attorney General agreed to this deal, but they did not actually put down in writing how much land the Odom were farming or how much water they actually needed. So basically, there were no hard numbers the Florence Canal Company had to meet. So they just built their canal, took the water they wanted, and... Well, the Odom got hosed. Again. Now, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior did recommend that the U.S. Attorney General litigate this case to secure the Pima in their rights. 
However, the U.S. District Attorney in Arizona didn't recommend doing so until they had actual numbers on the acreage and water flow the Odom needed. You know, the thing the government forgot to ask for in the first place. By the way, it would take some three decades before that data was finally collected. And just to add insult to injury, the Pima agency superintendent actually said that they shouldn't pursue a legal case on the issue because, in his opinion, the 20000 to 30000 it would cost wasn't worth the effort. So the issue was dropped. The water kept flowing into the Florence Canal, and the Odom's water rights continued to be neglected. I want to add in here that as the 1880s gave way to the 1890s, the ecology of the Gila River was changing. One of the most devastating blows had been the near extinction of beaver along its banks, which had increased erosion, silting, and gullying, while the overgrazing of cattle on native grasses and forest fires upstream helped disrupt the natural flow and recharge patterns of the river. However, the other part of this was what the Pima themselves did to survive. Starting in 1891, they began the wholesale chopping of mesquite wood to sell in order to buy food, seeing as they could not reliably grow crops. The summer crops would fail 11 times between 1892 and 1904, while the winter crop would fail 5 times between 1899 and 1904. So the Odom would turn to selling mesquite wood as a cash crop again and again. In 1900 alone, they cut some 19,000 cords of mesquite wood, by 1905, they had cut some 50,000 cords, and over the course of a decade, they cut down more than 100,000 cords of wood. The numbers are just staggering, and despite recommendations from those running the reservation, there was nothing they could do to ensure that only dead or down wood was harvested. Some families, desperate to survive, would cut living wood too. The end result being that, by the end of the 1890s, what had once been a stretch, or a bosque, of mesquite that ran for some 65 miles along the Gila had been virtually wiped out. And state historian Thomas Sheridan notes that on occasions when the Gila did flood, there were less trees now to slow the water, so the river cut deeper into its channel, which meant in any year where water actually made it down to the Odom, their canals were now too high to actually benefit from it. De Jong also adds that while the cutting of firewood did bring in cash payments to Pima families, it didn't provide any sort of economic boom to the community, especially because of the ecological problems it left behind. Throughout the late 1800s, the Indian agents and others who oversaw the Pima reservation repeatedly begged the government to do something, anything, to restore the Odom's usurped rights or find some ways to get water to them. These pleas usually fell on deaf ears to the point that Agent J. Rowe Young would put into his report to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs a rather testy note that, quote, nothing new could be said on this important subject. Until the time comes when the government is ready and willing to come to the assistance of its wards, I consider any further discussion of the subject unnecessary, end quote. This may seem like a large pivot, but... Before we continue with the plight of the Akamel Odom, we need to examine one of the big buzzwords of the late 19th century, especially of the arid lands of the West. And that word is reclamation. Reclamation in this context simply means 
irrigation, as it would allow farmers to quote-unquote reclaim formerly unworkable land. Because at that time and place, if you weren't using your land to farm, you were apparently doing it wrong. And one of the biggest champions of reclamation, or at least a better way of using water rights in the dry western United States, was John Wesley Powell. So I've been itching to talk about Powell for a while now, but could never really find a good time to cover him in depth. I did give a very brief synopsis of him in episode 79, where he befriended Jacob Hamlin, the so-called buckskin apostle. However, that has proven to be insufficient for such a fascinating figure, so I'll hope you'll forgive me now as I blatantly shoehorn him into a podcast episode for a second time. Powell was born in Mount Morris, New York in 1834, and from an early age had an intense curiosity about the natural sciences. He would study at Illinois College, what is today Wheaton College, and Oberlin College, though towards the end of his studies he thought that a civil war was inevitable and started studying military science and engineering to be prepared. Powell enlisted in the Civil War, and the big thing you need to take away is that at the Battle of Shiloh, his right arm was taken off by a mini-ball. As a personal aside, I first learned about Powell when my grandmother purchased a small statue of him riding atop a steed with the American flag clutched in the crook of the stump of his right arm. It was a very evocative image for a child, and one that I definitely haven't forgotten. Following the war, he took up a position as a professor of geology, but where he really intersects with Arizona history is in the expeditions he led to the West to collect samples and study geology, hydrology, and other natural sciences. His most famous was a rafting trip down the Colorado River in 1869, when he and his company actually started on the Green River in Wyoming before joining the Colorado until its confluence with the Virgin River. This was actually the first documented river run through the Grand Canyon itself. Powell would actually publish his diary of this trip, which fired the imagination of the nation and inspired river runners to follow in his footsteps. He also parlayed that fame into getting Congress to foot the bill for a survey of the Colorado Plateau, now called the Powell Survey, that produced a massive tome on the geology, hydrology, and geography of that region. Sheridan characterizes this work as monumental, saying that it filled in one of the last remaining gaps on the map of the western United States. What these trips also did, and the reason I felt good about shoving Powell in right here, is give him a perspective on how water could best be appropriated in the west. In 1879, he released another book entitled Lands of the Arid Regions of the United States, which one conservationist has labeled the most prophetic book in the range of American experience. To put it simply, Powell came to the conclusion that how water was being appropriated for use in the West was all wrong. Water laws of the time were often based on common riparian law, which ultimately came from the legal traditions of water-rich England that had been imported to the water-rich eastern United States. Basically, under these laws, a person settled by a river and was thus entitled to a share of it. A person settling nearby, but not alongside the river, was also granted some secondary rights to the river's water. 
Out West, these laws had soon been replaced by the doctrine of prior appropriation, or whoever got to the river first had the rights to it. So settlers did their level best to stake their claim beside a river, and thus deprive anyone else of the water. To Powell, all this was backward. After seeing the communal nature of the Mormon and Mexican settlements he met on his travels, he recommended doing away with the private ownership of water, the West's most crucial but scarce resource. What he proposed instead were irrigation districts, where individual farmers would be apportioned 80 acres for irrigated farming and 2,560 acres for pasture. The figure of 80 acres here is important because past legislation to transfer public land into private hands, such as the Homestead Act or the Desert Land Act, started people out at 160 acres and they could only go up from there. But Powell quite rightly noted that no person in the West could farm 160 acres, not with how little water there was to spare. For Powell, the idea was that irrigation districts would be self-governing, almost taking the place of states entirely. And much like libertarians today, Powell said that the federal government should only be there for defense, against Amerindians, don't you know, and administering any public lands. And Sheridan adds in that Powell believed that even while the government oversaw public lands, they should hand it over to local management. The irrigation districts, as imagined, would also do something almost unheard of in the annals of government administration. They would actually conform to topography. That is, they wouldn't be big boxes drawn on the map, but would actually fit organically into the watersheds they were meant to administer. And from this idea, radical proposal followed radical proposal, in the words of author Gregory McEnany. Powell would suggest things such as banning the private ownership of mountain forests and the grazing of cattle on public lands. Then, get this, he had the gall to suggest the irrigation districts actually be set up sparingly to not overtax the maximum capacity a river could provide. In the end, Powell's recommendations were too much for people, and by people I really mean special interests, to swallow. The Jeffersonian ideal of the country of Yemen farmers still held strong sway, and the quarter section, or 160 acres as the basis for farming, was still too ingrained in American thinking. McNamee goes so far as to call it sacrosanct. So, though he remained influential... Powell's ideas were smothered before they were ever implemented. As his plan was being dismissed, he would tell a roomful of government officials, quote, I tell you, gentlemen, you are piling up a heritage of conflict and litigation over water rights, for there is not sufficient water to supply the land, end quote. And you know, he wasn't wrong about that. Though his ideas were defeated, Powell actually got the government thinking about getting involved with reclamation. Starting in 1888, Congress approved various scientific investigations about potential reservoir sites in the West. As part of these surveys, in 1890, a USGS hydrologist named Frank Newell arrived in central Arizona to look at the Salt and Gila rivers and consider potential dam sites. In 1893, Newell 
the head of the USGS, and a hydraulic engineer named Arthur Davis came up with a national irrigation strategy, which conspicuously didn't mention lands held by Amerindians at all. Two years later, in 1895, Congress did approve $3,500 to study the Pima Reservation. Davis was assigned this task, and he would later report that, aside from forcing upstream farmers to route water back into the Gila, the only solution to help the Akamel Odom was to build a dam capable of storing 200,000 acre-feet of water somewhere. His suggestion for a dam along Queen Creek never went anywhere because it couldn't hold enough water, but another idea for a dam built at the Buttes could work. Building a dam on the Gila, and the roadblocks it faced, is an idea we'll come back around to in our next episode. However, I want to emphasize that, at this time, and for years to come, the government wasn't interested in footing the bill itself, but instead it was more hoping that private businesses or the states would raise the capital to build all these dams that everyone seemed to want. Several reclamation bills went before Congress, all with this point of view, And in 1894, Congress passed the Cary Act, which was essentially the opposite of Powell's proposal. Essentially, the act allowed the federal government to give public land directly to the states, which they were then supposed to sell to irrigation companies to raise the necessary capital to build reclamation projects. Arizona Territorial Governor Nathan Oakes Murphy was a big proponent of the Cary Act, fearing that any federal interference would stifle local control. The problem, however, is that most of the irrigation companies who attempted this endeavor went belly up because they didn't have a steady supply of operational revenue. By the 1900s, this had happened enough times, the states again began to look to the federal government for more help. I'm actually going to leave it here for this week, as the government is just starting to come around to the fact that it might have to invest some funds in building dams. And the thing is, when the dams were first being considered, most everyone just assumed they would be built on the Gila to help out the poor Akamel Odom, whose plight had been turned into a fundraising campaign. However, before this assumption became a reality, Phoenix, the hungry bear, who it turns out was also incredibly thirsty, stepped in and soon enough attention was focused away from the Gila and onto the salt. Okay, that's enough foreshadowing. But before I sign off, I just want to say, as I mentioned before when we went on our Thanksgiving hiatus, there will be no new episodes the next couple weeks because those are Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, respectively. But I will be back on January 7th to recount the Valley of the Sun's push for dam building, the beginning of the Salt River Project, and the eventual building of Roosevelt Dam. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.